Welcome to the Startups Roundtable podcast, where we discuss the science and art of startups with founders and the broader startup community. I'm Tony Hackett, and I've spent over a third of my B2B sales career either working for early stage startups or as a go-to-market and social selling mentor for founders and their teams. In each episode, we will explore various topics, including decision-making, team-building, and growth strategies. Before we meet today's guest, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attending today. Today I'm joined by Danae Shell, who is the co-founder and CEO of Valor, where they are making legal support affordable for everyone through their new DIY platform specifically for getting your employment issues sorted without spending thousands on a lawyer. Danae has a technology background and has worked in a number of startups, which gave us plenty to discuss. So let's get started. Danae, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you join me today. I wonder if you could get us underway by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to right now. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Danae Shell. I am the co-founder and the CEO of Vala, and we help people get justice when they can't afford a lawyer. We are a DIY legal platform for consumers, and we're starting with people who need to stand up to their employers. You have a responsibility embedded in that, which is about the person, but there's something there about trust. How have you been able to encourage people to trust you in what may be some of their darkest days? How have you done that? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think part of it is that in my career, I've spent a long time writing content or trying to demystify scary subjects for people. It seems to be the thread that runs through a lot of what I've done. I actually started doing it with lingerie, of all things. I got really interested in blogging just as blogging became a thing um, back in the dark days of the internet. And uh, I got really interested in bra sizing and the intersection of bra sizing with confidence. And so the first blog that I published was actually, it was called Knickers, and it was actually about bra sizing confidence and this question that a lot of people had about, you know, like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I wear something that fits me? All kinds of things like that. So it was really interesting that ostensibly, you know, it was about luxury lingerie, but really it was about confidence. And then when I moved over to Free Agent, which is an online accounting software platform, I was really helping people deal with the shame and the fear of finances and the what's wrong with me? Why can't I get these? Why can't I get these books done? Why can't I understand this tax thing? And I think I, I think I just detect shame and I hate people having to go through it and I really try and eradicate it and really try and reassure people. And so then when um, we started Vala, we immediately started tailoring everything that we do to, you know, speaking to that emotional core of what people are actually going through. Kate, my co-founder, she is a really talented product specialist. She understands user research. She she identified those really core needs very quickly. And we started speaking to those core needs very quickly, the isolation that people feel, the shame that they feel, the fear. And we talk at that level with people. And I think that inspires a lot of trust. I love the fact that you've used the word confidence. It's interesting. I've been doing some work a couple of years ago, trying to work out how you calculate the business value of confidence. 
And it just came up as a topic in the last couple of weeks with a, a friend of mine, Inder Singh, and Inder works in the startup community in Australia. And we were talking about confidence and what it, what it means. And particularly in the, the conversation we were having, was it about women returning to the workforce and trying to work out what confidence means. And I, I use this as a, it's not a great example, but it's an example that if you and I were talking about cloud computing today, and then we would have an understanding about it today. If one of us was out of the workforce for a year and we came back and we we're in a team meeting, has it changed? Who knows? Like It's about confidence. Do you have the confidence to participate, to lead, and to actually draw somebody else in? Like There are these different tiers of confidence. So what's the business value of confidence? And I worked out a model, but it was more about depicting that there are different levels of confidence and it does mean something that an organization should be trying to elicit the greatest confidence that they can in all participants. And there are so many times in the workplace that we're in environments where, in fact, people thrive on ensuring that you don't get to surface your confidence. And as I was looking at what I think I understand about Valor and what you're doing, so much of it at its core was about trust and confidence and respect. Regardless of the situation, there are those human elements that you, I say, tap into. I mean that obviously in the nicest possible way. But if you're not there to support people, where do people look? So what were they doing before Valor came on the scene? Often nothing. Um, often they were feeling really isolated, maybe Googling things in the middle of the night, maybe speaking to some friends. And often they just left the job and went on to something else and dealt with the you know, fallout of that emotionally. In many cases, they would phone up a lawyer and ask um, what their options were. And one of the first questions that that lawyer would ask them is how much money they earned. And if it was less than maybe 50, 60,000, the lawyer would probably say, you know what, even if you won this case, it wouldn't actually be able to pay my fees. So I'm not sure this is going to be a great option for you. You know, some, place, some places they could get some legal support and that is amazing. And, you know, sometimes they might phone up a law clinic or something like that and get one-off advice. But in a lot of cases, they, they couldn't do much about it. Or the other thing that a lot of people did, a growing audience, which is what really inspired us, was... They push through all of that because usually we, we hear people for one of two reasons push forward. One is I need a settlement because I need to be able to move forward with my life. I need time to get everything back together. I need time to get another job. So I need to get a particular amount of money so that I can keep going. Or there's the other people who say money is important. Yes. But the most important thing here is that they're held accountable for what happened. And I can prevent this from happening from the next person. People will push through on those two things and they do it themselves, despite the fact that they had very little resources available to them, very little support. How did you and Kate, your co-founder, how did you come to decide to take the step from realizing there was a gap, there was a need, and to actually start and invest yourselves into doing this. How did you find each other and get underway? Yeah. So Kate and I worked together at Free Agent, the online accounting software company. Um, she, I was an early marketing employee and she was the first product employee coming in to um, help the founder and build out the product function. And we worked together for, it was nearly two years and we just loved working with each other. Our skill sets are very complementary and um, we have this same kind of drive and energy to make the world better. And we, I think we also have that founder's megalomania where we think that we're capable of making the world better. 
And we recognized that in each other. So I think we knew pretty early on that we were going to keep working together even after we left Free Agent. And we played around with a couple of ideas. But what we found was as we got more senior in our careers, we stayed friends. And as we got more senior, we became more rare. Um, especially Kate, she's um, not just a woman, but also from Hong Kong. And we um, started to see a lot of problems when it came to harassment, discrimination. You know, people would come to us looking for support and advocacy. In one of her organizations, it was a big organization as well. Kate was the most senior person of color. And people were approaching her on that basis, looking for advice and help. And we, you know, we just heard some heartbreaking stories. And we also dealt with some really difficult stuff ourselves. And to be honest, it really just pissed us off. <laughs> and we got so angry about it that we said, you know, why isn't anyone doing anything about this? Wait, we can do something about this. And, you know, we had both grown up. Kate had already ran her own agency. She was already a founder. I had grown up in startups over my whole career. I knew exactly what startups look like. And so we said, okay, we know this. We know how to build a startup and scale it. With that skill set, can we actually make a dent in this problem? Can we actually make a meaningful impact at a global scale? Because it's not just a British problem or an American and an Australian problem. And so that was the mentality that we went into this with. We loved the problem. We wanted to solve the problem. And then we went through a lot of product discovery, a lot of lean thinking to then figure out, well, what's, what's the right solution for this problem? And how different is the solution that lives today compared to dot one version? Oh my goodness. It's, it's, it's so different. And it also is a little bit full circle. So we, the very first idea that we had, because I was going through something difficult and I said, you know what? I just want to speak to a lawyer, but I don't want to have to explain the patriarchy to them. So our very first kind of execution was let's build like a marketplace for woke lawyers, you know, um, an LGBTQ friendly lawyer, for example, um, a lawyer who specializes in issues for black people, et cetera. So we started there and we even built a marketplace for that. You know, it's easy to build something like that. Kate and I, it's one of the few things that we actually did cut code on. Um, and then after that, we, even though we could both code, we just no coded everything else until we were really certain of what we were doing. And then we looked around when we were searching for our own site and we realized places like that existed, not with that special angle of kind of an inclusive lawyer, but there were marketplaces out there, but none of them were making any money. None of them were getting any market share. And that got us really curious about why. We then went back to the market, we kept digging, and we realized that even though there's a lot of different things about the legal market that makes it friendly to a marketplace, fundamentally, it's the delivery model that's wrong. And you can put a marketplace on top of it, but you're still just essentially generating leads for a tiny percentage of the market that can afford the actual service. And then everybody else just gets ruled out. So that led us on a journey that took us from a B2B model, a data platform. Goodness, we had, we thought about all kinds of different things and it took us quite a long way of experimenting and user testing before we came to really understanding how we shifted that delivery model, how we shifted that work to make legal services affordable. Does your domain allow you to experiment in the truest sense of the word? Yes, we, we raised pre-seed funding in late 2020 on the explicit kind of understanding and permission from our first investors to go and experiment. They really trusted us. They understood the big problem. They understood our skill set, and they said, this is for you to go and figure out, like go and find the real heart of this. 
go and experiment. And so that's what we did. We we moved as fast as we possibly could, but no faster, <laughs> if that makes sense. So yeah, we um, reiterated a lot to get to where we are now. And I, I feel like we've, there's obviously more work to do. There always is more things to learn, but I feel like we've really found the heart of the problem. And I think we can make a transformational change. How did you communicate your mission and your vision that clearly that investors would be encouraging you to experiment? One part of it was the investors really did understand what early stage funding looks like. And I think that's rare, actually. I think um, there's still a lot of investors, even at that pre-seed stage, who are still asking about metrics and revenue and things like that. We had investors who really understood that stage. But in terms of communicating the vision and the mission, I told them the same story I told you about why this existed. When you look at the numbers of people who are completely disenfranchised from legal support but have a legal need, it is staggering, especially worldwide. So the market was there. And I think because Kate and I, you know, we're experienced technologists. My background was marketing after I um, switched over from being a software engineer. And Kate's worked at big companies like Skyscanner and national banks, things like that. And so I think it was the combination of that vision plus our CVs that really gave them the confidence that this was worth a bet. I look at the statistics and uh, 73% female investors and 33% people of color. When I saw that, I'll tell you exactly as it went through my mind, I thought that would be something that would be aspirational for organizations. Then I stopped myself in my tracks and I thought that is actually that far beyond an aspiration. What you've achieved, organizations wouldn't actually put down. What were the fundamental steps? Because it's not like you wake up one morning, go abracadabra, and that's what it is. So it's, it's foresight, it's vision. And it's hard work. What were the tough points that you were able to punch through? And what would be your tips to an early stage founder listening to this right now from that whole building an inclusive business? What would you be suggesting of the do's and what were some of the things that maybe you would have stopped faster? Wonderful question. I think in terms of the do's, be very conscious about where you invest your time, especially as a CEO, and where you invest your networking time, particularly. So you are who you're with. When I network, because to me, meeting people and networking is my job. Like that is the core fundamental part of my job. It's to go out and tell Vala's story to all kinds of different people, the press, investors, potential partners, everyone. And when I think about investment, we've always had a very clear vision that we can't build the platform that supports the people that we're trying to focus on the most, people from historically marginalized backgrounds. We can't build that platform unless we have representation at every level of the company, including the investors. And there are communities that I don't have access to as a white woman. Kate doesn't have access to as a Chinese woman who really would be amazing early adopters for Vala. And we want access to those communities. So when we thought about investment, when we thought about, you know, building our networks out, we thought about it in that way. What communities could we get access to? Who are influencers in those communities? And often, you know, we didn't start investment conversations with them. A couple of our investors we started speaking to because they were, you know, operators who really believed in what we were doing. And then they eventually, they became advisors and then they became investors. In other cases, we sought them out explicitly. I said, you know, I want to... Does anyone know anyone who is part of this community who is a you know would be a great investor? We we ran an invitation only angel round after our pre-seed round. Um, so I put together all the materials. I called it our secret round and put together all the materials and said, look, there's a few different key points where we could accelerate here if we raised a bit of money. 
I know that check sizes are going to get bigger. Minimum check sizes are going to get bigger once we get past our seed round. So before that happens, while we still have a relatively accessible check size, I want to bring on more people from different communities and I want to bring on more B2C people. So we put all of that together and then I seeded out to a couple of trusted people and I said, anyone you invite, I trust. So can you extend this invitation to people? And then it spread out through those networks. And that is um, where we brought on a lot of those angels that have massively broadened our kind of experience base, both from that B2C perspective and from the perspective of different communities we could access. You spoke about networking just a moment ago and in this land that we live in of COVID era, work from home, remote working as as we're communicating through the screen. I would imagine that the people that come to you for help, I'll start there, I'll come to your business growth, but those that come to you for help are looking for advice and support, but also arm around the shoulder. What has that felt like through this fully remote period and how have you tackled that? The business properly started during lockdown. And so what's really interesting is almost my entire experience of Vala has been sitting in this room and <laughs> talking to people on this computer. And that that's very comfortable for me because I was one of those late millennials who grew up on the internet. And it's funny, actually, when I meet people in real life now that I've been talking to on Zoom, I forget that I haven't already met them. It's not different for me, um, I think, because I'm so embedded in the internet now. <laughs> I often say I'm from Tennessee, but I actually live on the internet. When people come to me, they usually come to me in a few different ways. Most recently on TikTok, I've started to get really big audience on TikTok that's growing all the time. And I think, again, that's that emotional connection. Um, before that, it was LinkedIn. We get a lot of queries through then and then also through friends. And going through a conversation with them on chat about what's happening to them, you learn what not to ask and what to ask. And you learn typically how people will kind of want to tell their story. One of the first things that we built in Vala was the ability to lay your story out in a timeline because we're very conscious that having to tell your story over and over can be re-traumatizing. Sometimes all people need is for someone to listen to their story. But as they move through the process, the more they have to tell it over and over, the less reward they're going to get for it emotionally. So I honor the story that they're telling me. I acknowledge kind of what they went through. And you can do that online just as I think just as well as you can do it in person. And then I always ask them next, you know, what do you want? And I don't think many people get asked that question, especially in these situations. I'll say, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and solve this, what would that look like? And then we start from there in terms of me helping them figure out what they want to do next. What's the greatest joy for you out of being a co-founder with Bala? There's a few. When, When we heard about the first settlement that someone got through the Vala platform, that was huge. That was such a big day. Concrete, real results from something that Kate and I had dreamed up in her living room. That was that was a really big thing. Um, I can I feel think, that in your words, by the way. Yeah, it, it really like it really shook us all. It was incredible. I think that when someone comes back and says, "I won" or "I got what I wanted," that that is definitely the biggest one. I think the second biggest one is. The other reason that Vala exists is because Kate and I both feel like it's possible to build a unicorn that isn't an exploitative business. And one of our investors, Alani, she um, coined this phrase, build a better unicorn. That is kind of like our guiding principle. That's our guiding goal. And so I love trying to do that. I, I, I take a lot of joy out of trying to do that and trying to think about how to do that. You sat down with Kate and you're building out the business and you're planning it. And you're trying to work out how you share wrestling all these things to the ground. Did you find it easy to 
pair responsibilities off and just keep a focus on where you should be? And if you did have that challenge, how did you overcome it? Wonderful question, because I, I think a lot of people don't think about this when they start working with a co-founder. And I think a lot of it isn't explicit in the beginning. And we had the benefit of two things. One is Kate had done a startup before, so she knew what she liked about that and what she didn't like about that. So she said right from the beginning, I want you to be the CEO. And I was like, that's great because I want to be the CEO. She understood what being the CEO was way more than I did at the time. I always joke, she can do my job, but I can't do hers. She did not like having to do all of the external stuff. She like, she wants to build things. Kate is a, you know, Kate is all about products. She's about customers. She wants to dig in and build amazing products. So she's like, if you can just go and do all the talking, I'm going to go build stuff and have a great time. So she was very clear about what she wanted. And that was perfectly aligned with what I wanted. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to inspire people to bring them on board with what we're trying to do. So that was really clear. And the other thing that was so helpful was we worked with a coach right at the beginning. And because again, we um, were both emotionally intelligent people. We understood that alignment at the executive level is the most important thing for the success of any company. I don't know if you've read Patrick Lencioni. His entire catalog of books is all about executive alignment, communication of that alignment. And we took that really seriously. So we worked with a coach who we still work with who helped us sit down and carve out those responsibilities, carve out those principles of how we would work with each other, where we thought there was going to be problems, how we would communicate through that. And, you know, it's never been perfect, but we've, I think we started from a very solid foundation. You've led me into a question that I, I've asked. It's the only question I've asked every guest I've had on the podcast, and that's around mentors and coaches. And from your learning and experience, if there was somebody listening to this right now, how would you share that knowledge and experience around finding a great mentor or coach? I've worked with coaches for probably about 10 years now. My first coach I worked with to try and get out of a job or figure out whether or not I should be leaving that job and moving forward because I felt like I was topping out. And then, oh no, actually the coach before that I worked with to get into that job. And then I worked with another coach to get out of that job and get into the next job. And then I've worked with many coaches, a CEO, a couple different ones to move through all of the emotional things and everything else as the business things. To find a good coach, one is it's almost non-negotiable. You need a coach. If you are moving through your career, you need a coach, full stop. All athletes have coaches to perform. All of us need coaches too. Like I just think it's such an integral part of my career. And to find a good one, I've usually done it through word of mouth. And what I've specific, I think there's a real trick in what you ask for. It's identifying exactly what you need and then saying, does anyone know anyone who can help with this specific thing? And sometimes the people who have helped me have been official coaches and sometimes they have been unofficial coaches. But I knew I needed to figure out how to move on to the next job in that first case. I had a career coach to get into that job. I said, I need a career coach to help me find the right job. The next time it was, I need a leadership coach to help me understand what my potential is. The next time it was, I need a business coach to help me understand what's expected of me in this job. And then this last time, I have a fundraising coach at the moment who's been supporting me through our seed round. And then I have a general kind of leadership business CEO coach who's really just supporting me through giving, like Kate and I can't be everything to each other. And so I use coaches to kind of give me what I can't get from my co-founder because you know, she's, it's just like a marriage. You, you can't rely on your partner for absolutely everything. You need to get support from other places. 
I think what you've just described there is you've been able to maximize the value from your coaches because you understand yourself extremely well and you didn't leave it to per chance. It's this is where I'm at. This is what I need. I need to go and find that coach and being very specific to it. I know that some co-founders and founders I've spoken to have talked about a broader, maybe a more horizontal need, but yours is I need this here and here. Maybe it even plays back to your point before about you network very well and so you've got a broad sweep of people to actually draw on. But it probably does come back to that. The better you know yourself, the more you'll get to understand what you need from a, a coach or a mentor. I, I must say that one of my favorite answers responses from a co-founder was, I'll summarize it. I want to find somebody that's successful so that I can understand how to be successful, but I don't want them to be that successful that they've forgotten what the grind is like. That's a perfect answer. And I think about that. The phrase that I think about is one step ahead. So my fundraising coach, for example, he is one step ahead of me in terms of everything that he's done. Like he's not so far away that he doesn't understand what I'm going through. And I often do a lot of mentoring and coaching to especially female founders who are just one step behind me, like a year, two years behind Max. And I'm like, I understand exactly what you're going through. I just did it. Let me tell you how I just did it. And I, th- I think that is so much more valuable than, you know, somebody who's sitting on a board somewhere. Their experience, like things move so quickly. Their experience is valuable, but it's not actionably directly valuable in that same way. So yeah, I think your guest was so wise. This mentoring and coaching, it is such, it is so easy to talk about or to raise as a question, but the complexity of it is immense, but the value is immense to like the power of 10. I love what you've just shared. I am curious to, I'm going to ask a question that's an unfair question because I think it's going to be difficult. Maybe we'll see how difficult it is to answer, but for you to, your business to thrive, it means that things aren't working as how ideally they should work. Are there one or two things you would suggest to, as I say, we startups round table, we have founders, co-founders, people thinking about doing that listening, in thinking about building their business, some missteps they could avoid or some steps they could take so that the types of issues that present and end up coming to your door don't present. So how could they think about structuring their business and their thinking? I would never be more happy to be put out of a job than with this business. I mean, Kate and I, we can go build another startup if we can solve this problem. That's great. (laughs) So yeah, for other founders. So first of all, we do do a little bit about this. So we don't want to focus too much on HR and employer training, but we do have in the UK a training course called Discrimination First Aid. It's modeled on the mental health first aid kind of idea. And the general idea is to teach people to be better allies at work and to support a colleague who's going through discrimination at work emotionally, organizationally, and with some of the legal stuff. And I really, I just built that because I wish I'd had it five or six years ago. And we've had quite a few first aiders go through the program and train. And a few employers have asked us to train their teams in first aids. Their general idea being, I want to be held accountable for doing the right thing. And I think that this is a very good way of doing that. And I think in general, that is the mindset that I would go in as a founder, go in with is we all know that building an inclusive business is difficult because it's cutting against the mold. It's cutting against all of the kind of common practices. And it's very difficult to do because you will keep accidentally slipping back into just what's done. And I think the biggest thing that anyone can do is to change that mindset from, oh no, I'm going to do everything wrong, like, ah, to, okay, I'm probably going to do a lot of stuff wrong and I'm going to be really open 
when I find out about that and I'm not going to be defensive and I'm going to embrace the friction every time it comes up and use that as a learning point rather than using that as reacting to it defensively. I think that is the key change. Like I could talk through specifics of hiring processes and things like that, but I think behind all of it is learning to embrace the discomfort of being out of your comfort zone and being called out, being told that you've done something wrong, realizing that you had a blind spot in your hiring process, realizing that you were unintentionally excluding a group of people in in a business practice. That mindset is everything. Everything else follows after that. Embrace the friction. That captures it beautifully. You've summarized a very complex question in a remarkable way and maybe feels like a a good place for us to pause today. Danae, I'm so grateful that you would join me on the podcast. This is such an important topic. I feel that we've only just touched the surface and uh, with your agreement, we could pick it up in a future conversation. I'd love to continue it with you, but thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feedback is always welcome. And I would appreciate introductions to potential future guests to invite onto the podcast. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now.